welcome to Life Lessons in 35mm, a podcast that delves into the life lessons from the silver screen. School might have taught us about history, sciences and maths, but John McLean taught us about how to be cool. Neo taught us the value of free will and the responsibility in making our own choices. Back to the Future taught us our future hasn't been written yet. Our future is whatever we make it. And Pretty Woman taught us that you should never judge a book by its cover. We'll talk about all sorts. Love, family, heroes. Storytelling, friendship, dogs. <laughs> Wait, dogs? Yeah, yeah. There's an episode about dogs. I figured that people sometimes might want something a little more light-hearted. And besides, who doesn't love dogs, right? No, that's fair. So, wherever you are, whatever you're doing, thanks for joining us. So, welcome to episode nine of the Life Lessons in 35mm podcast. Um, I'm here as as always with Nicholas Long. How are you doing, Nick? I'm all right, thanks, Andrew. See, I, I noticed there that you, as I did last time, you almost stumbled over the title of the podcast because it's been a while, hasn't it? It's going to be completely fine. What we're going to do in, in with the magic of editing is actually delete some of that space in between um, and it's going to sound seamless. Lovely stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm all good, thanks. How are you doing? Um, very good, very good. Um, winter is ending here. Um, the snow is melting and um, we're moving into spring so exciting times ahead lovely and here conversely winter is coming as they say in game of thrones we've got no white walkers on the way to be honest but it's getting colder that you know of that i know of it's early it's early in the in the piece (laughs) having said that um i am currently um working my way through game of thrones so if there are white walkers i know how to kill them Ah, oh, you'll be sweet anyway. You, you know, you're practically living in King's Landing, so. <laughs> I am, I am. This feels like the the, the geekiest of uh, of, of um, preambles. It does. Should we move past it? <laughs> Let's just push past. So today we're going to be taking on the Academy Award winning film, There Will Be Blood, and talking about, well, our lesson today is a bit of a it's a bit of a difficult one, isn't it? Because um, we obviously created this podcast um, with the idea of talking about the lessons that you learn through watching films. And if we're honest, we just wanted to watch this film, eh? <laughs> We've kind of wrapped a lesson around it, so yeah, listeners will have to um, bear with us, and and hopefully, what we talk about will have some value to them other than the lesson itself yeah well i think it was uh like you said we just wanted to talk about this film because we were thinking about which ones to do obviously we've done some you know our last episode was the matrix a big you know culturally important film that's very well regarded by most people and we just thought this would be quite a different one to do and also it's a film that i think i said at the end of the last episode that probably has a legitimate claim to be one of if not the best film of the last 20 years and uh, you were quite surprised by that, but I'm fairly sure that after watching it again, you agree. Yeah, I wanted to disagree strongly, but I have to say there's, there's something in there. I mean, I think it's a film much like an onion. <laughs> Each layer just um, gives you another layer. No, I, I don't know. <laughs> Is it like an onion? Probably not. Um, no, it, it's certainly a film that, because I've watched it, I think, three times. I watched it 
many years ago when it first came out i was like wow that's that's intense and it's funny like like um i was listening to a podcast with with tarantino and he says any person who watches this film once will never understand it or never really understand its greatness and even the great tarantino had to watch it a few times to really um understand that it's it is one of the best films ever made i mean i'm gonna say it i see you're fully converted now um see yeah i think i've probably watched it in total maybe four times i watched it quite soon after it came out and i agree i think you i think the word you use there intense is perfect because it is an intense viewing isn't it um again i watched it maybe two or three years ago and then in preparation for this i've watched it another couple of times because i watched it and i was just like you know you know when we sit down to do these things i always think right i'll I'll watch the film and i will really try and think about what we're going to talk about afterwards but i completely forgot to do that the first time i watched it (laughs) Because I just got so wrapped up in it and so drawn into it. And um, that's because of that that first, like, what is it? First 30 minutes, probably, where there is absolutely no dialogue going on. It's just visual. And I was completely drawn into it. And I completely forgot to sort of think about what I was seeing and, and kind of try and start to imagine how I might articulate what I think about it. So then I went and watched it again. And uh, and yeah, and it's it's so, so good. It's so, so good. It's fantastic, isn't it? Um, it's got a great score to it. Um, it. It wasn't able to be nominated for an oscar i think for some some strange reason but it it was um that guy from radiohead eh? yeah johnny greenwood it is unbelievable that it wasn't able to be nominated for an oscar and i think i read about this the other day and i think it's something to do with the fact that it includes a piece of existing music so i think there's a piece of classical music that's used a couple of times throughout the film and because of that it's it, you know well I remember on our first episode we talked about the fact that Scarlett Johansson couldn't be nominated for an Oscar because she doesn't appear on screen and in the same way here Johnny Greenwood is not able to be nominated because there is a couple of uses of an existing piece of music but you're right the score it's really um, unnerving isn't it and eerie at times yeah there's that that opening sequence when Daniel's in the mine and um, there's those strings that are like um, really pulled back and I think think. Um, <clears throat> that that kind of music was used to death over the um it's two thousand and seven is it yeah two thousand and seven so around that period of time that string string piece was really used by Hollywood. Would well, you know what it reminds me of? Um, like you said, I think I think the the sort of like the really taut, high pitched strings that that sort of like have this real tension to them. It reminds me a little bit of um, sorry to go a bit off track, but you know the Dark Knight. So I I went to see um I've been to see Hans Zimmer live a couple of times and he obviously scored The Dark Knight and he tells a little story about how uh, Christopher Nolan asked him to just come up with a sound to represent the Joker and he used um, a razor blade on cello strings I think was the final one that was that was chosen and it's got that real like screechy kind of makes your hairs on the back of your neck stand up nails down a chalkboard type thing and I think it does that I think this is almost like a a better version of that because he doesn't he uses the strings as they are as they are normally used but they're used in such a way that there's this incredible like tension and you just think something's going to happen it's just, it's really really unnerving i think yeah and there's there's ton of that all the way throughout it's an interesting um johnny johnny greenwood he was like really he, he didn't think he could do it and thomas thomas paul Anderson um, really had to tr- try to twist his arm to to convince him to do it, 
And <laughs> you, you can imagine um, he's like, okay, no, I'm, I'm going to do it. Okay, so yeah, just give me, um, what was, what's the first scene? And the first like scene is 20 minutes long with no dialogue. <laughs> he has to score that you know you can imagine um you know the task was made so much harder well maybe that's easy I, I don't know no i think it probably is hard because actually what he well what he manages to do is make something that on the face of it sounds fairly ordinary it's a man digging like a mine to try and find silver but you've got this horrendous tension that's running through you when you're watching it because of the score and you don't know why but it works really effectively and I think what he does really well throughout the film is that that horrible tension and I can't think of a better word than tension really but it kind of pops up at really unexpected times during the film it can be something completely seemingly unimportant or it's kind of regular happening but then this score comes in and you're like hang on a second what's going on here there's something more going on well, what is going on here? What is going on here? And um, I, I don't know in what article I read it or heard it, but I, I did hear that um, Paul Thomas Anderson, he described this as um, a modern horror film. That that was um, his own words. And, and it does feel like that, um, that particularly that, that score, the, the start and just a few moments in it where you are... A, on tender hooks as the scene is kind of progressing. So shout out to um, Johnny Greenwood. And um, yeah, um, just, I think, I think um, before we go into um, talking about the film in depth, of, of course, there might be some spoilers and um, we, we always try to give people the heads up. And, and, and as always, if you haven't watched this film, what are you doing? Get out there and and watch it, uh, and and th- there might be an answer to that with this particular film because, as I described it before, it was intense. I, I was thinking about watching this with my flatmates and and thought, what will they get from it? Because it is quite an intense viewing. It's difficult at parts, um, violent, and you know potentially like in today's world, which is a, a lot, a lot more sensitive. Then, then you know the early nineteen hundreds. How how we kind of interpret what's going on there is it, is slightly problem problematic, I think, because you you are living in a world where we we have hard men doing hard jobs, and I I think we have to take that into context when reading this film. So, I know we we're probably gonna um, discuss this at, at a late late later point in the, the podcast, but. I think potentially we might have slightly different interpretations of Daniel Plainview, but I I always want us to think about the the context of the time that he's he is in, and not try to place him in modern day. Do Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, no, I totally know what you mean. And I think what you said is um, there's a, a real like violence about the film, and I think that's really accurate. And I but I also think what's really interesting is that there's there is despite the fact that there are not that many overtly violent scenes in the film there is a like a violence that runs through it and it runs through him isn't it you can almost see it in his face and in his eyes he's just got this violence just bubbling under the surface that you can just see is is really close to coming out 
very like very frequently throughout the film and it, and you're right he's a very hard man and it's and i think it well first of all i think it is he is played to perfection and is so compelling because of daniel day lewis he is unbelievable in this film yeah and he took a took home with him the best performance by an actor in a leading role um in the oscars um so they got that right yeah he's, he's fantastic in this and um, I asked the question, why would I, I show this film to my, my housemates? I'd hope that they would um, share my enthusiasm for his performance because he is hypnotizing in it. Oh, he is. He really is. Yeah. I, I'd I'd watch this film again and again just to listen to him and and watch him. Listen to him. Like that, that um, really interesting accent that he creates for the role yeah he's it's so it's almost it's it's become iconic hasn't it you know the look that he has the way that he speaks uh he is uh, to to, to answer one question why would you show it with why would you show it uh to to your housemates well first of all you they should see it but second of all it's maybe best that they don't see it with you because if they don't appreciate it i know you'd have you'd have some problems (laughs) wouldn't you Uh, absolutely um they know they know my temper um, they know how i they know how i get and um i'm i'm not going to defend myself to be honest nick yeah and, and that's fair yeah. <laughs> um but yeah i think yeah to to, to, to come back to Darren day lewis he is he is so good in this and I, I think he is obviously very well known for the fact he doesn't take on many roles and there's normally quite big gaps in between his films and i think he had for this he i think there was about 3 years for him to prepare for this film so obviously he's knowing you know knowing what what everyone i'm sure has read about him and heard about him i'm sure he would basically poured his life into this for 3 years which is why the character is so real and so iconic and so convincing because i you know he is daniel plainview you know when you when you see when you watch this film you do not see daniel day lewis as is the case most of the time when he's in a when he's in a film because he's so good, but in this he really disappears into Daniel Plainview and it is he is a very frightening character, a very like violent character, but also so compelling. You know he's not a nice man, or for, for large parts he's not a nice man, but you can't help but just be completely drawn to him and just want to see what he does because he's so so good. Uh, to be fair, I'd probably give him my oil if I had no any oil, I'd probably give it to him. You dig down with your hands until you found oil. Say, Daniel, I found you some oil. <laughs> da, 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 Daniel, <laughs> got some, got some more. Yeah, he'd hate me. Like, <laughs> just imagine him backhanding <laughs> me <laughs> as he does with um, with um, Paul Dano's character. Um, and so talking about Paul Paul Dano, spare a thought for him because um, whereas Daniel Day Lewis had all the time in the world to prepare for this film. Paul Dano, um, who plays Eli, his um, his nemesis, his opposite, he he actually had four days. Bit bit unfair, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Imagine, yeah, because wasn't it he? Because he he plays he plays the twins, doesn't he? So there's Paul Sunday who appears in one scene of the film, and I believe he was he was only cast as Paul. They had a different actor in mind to play Eli, and then what three or four days before they started shooting, Paul Thomas Anderson actually said he decided they wanted to cast Paul Dano instead. So just, just in my, right from Paul Dano's point of view, right? You're a young actor, very good actor, I think Paul Dano is, but you this was, you know, this was now what 13, 14 years ago, probably 15, 16 years ago when they were in terms of like produ- uh, prepping and filming for it. 
So you're this young actor breaking into films and stuff and you go, um, you, you actually were going to give you a bigger part in the film. Oh, brilliant. You know, how exciting is that? You've got four days to prepare. And by the way, you're going to be acting opposite probably the greatest actor of your generation who's been preparing for this for the last three years. You'd be like, cheers then. <laughs> it's a bit unfair, isn't it? <laughs> but to be fair, he does do he does do a very good job. Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting um, because Tarantino had this to say about Paul Dano, that he didn't think he was at the same level as Daniel Day-Lewis which I felt was a bit unfair because, I mean, who is at the same level as Daniel Day-Lewis? <laughs> exactly. That's a very good point. <laughs> and and actually, like, I, I think the way he played the role, he's so strange in a way, isn't he? He's, so, he's got this wiry, kind of geeky, impish-like, but, but fused with confidence and zeal that that plays really um, well against Daniel Plainview's character, who, who's more traditional um, masculine strength. Uh, and the two kind of contrast really well together and, and really kind of play against that whole dynamic because the two are meant to be kind of the different sides of the same coin, eh? Yeah, no, I th- I think actually, I th- I have to say, Paul Dano should get huge credit for this film because I think he is generally really, really good in it. And I think he he often plays those kind of slightly unusual characters, doesn't he? I know I don't want to say that he's typecast because I haven't seen all of his work, but a lot of the performances I remember from him are kind of sort of for the slightly more unusual characters. And you're right, he has, um, Eli is a, and actually Paul as well, both, both of the brothers that he plays, they have this, they have this almost confidence about them despite the fact that they are quite meek and mild in their manner and it, and it does yeah it does play off really well against um against daniel and what i what i love is is the fact that every scene and interaction you can just see the anger underneath the skin of daniel plainview and you can tell he hates these characters from the very first minute he meets them because they you know they that you know well he does, you know he hates pretty much all people as he says during the film but you can just see that this this tension is there and this anger is building because of this because of these kind of character this this young kind of preacher that he sees as a complete fraud is kind of you know almost challenging him in in, in a way and it, yeah so i think credit has huge credit to paul dano as well i think he is he's really good in this and to be able to sort of um for want of a better phrase sort of hold your own against possibly the greatest living actor well, the greatest living actor, possibly one of the greatest actors of all time, is uh, you know it's not an easy thing to do, and so I think credit goes to him for that because he it's uh it's not like you don't remember him in the film, is it? It's not like you it's not like he's you know he's very much you, you can't you can't think about this film without thinking about Daniel Day Lewis, but for me I I can't think about this without you know without thinking about Eli as well because he is equally a really interesting character that's that's played really really well. Yeah, definitely, and and it's um, so important that. Daniel Plainview has has a foil, or um, or even Daniel Day Lewis has a foil to kind of play, um, against or, or play with, and um, yes, some of the scenes um with those those two, it's a it's a constant back and forth, and um, maybe maybe we should ask that question straight up, like um, what's going on there? What is the significance of Daniel Plainview and Eli Sunday? And why is why is this relationship so important to the film? 
Well, yeah, I mean, obviously it is the the crucial relationship, isn't it? And I think just before I go into that, I thought actually what we haven't done yet is, is recap the initial initial lesson that we that we were going to discuss about this. Um, so obviously, uh, in the last episode, we mentioned the fact that we were going to be talking about this in the context of how there will be blood shows us the consequences of building walls. And as you've already mentioned, we're kind of going to stray from that slightly. And I think the the first point of that is that when we decided to what to talk about this film, both of us wanted to go back and rewatch it. And I think the way we the way we approached it in our minds back then was, um, or certainly for me, was based around this idea that there's a there's a quote in the film, there's a line that Daniel Plainview says, where there are times when I look at people and I see, I see nothing worth liking. I want to earn enough money, I can get away from everyone. And that that's always stuck, stuck with me because I think it's this idea of wanting to be isolated. Um, so that's where this sort of idea of building walls came from. But I think, as you've already mentioned, we're probably going to talk about lots of different things. But to build, to build on that a little bit, the sort of relationship with Eli and Daniel for me feels like a very in very literal terms a sort of like a war between or a conflict between capitalism and religion um, and they both are essentially representations or depictions of that so i think daniel plainview himself is a perfect depiction of capitalism and the fact that it's this kind of cold transactional view of the world built, built around kind of greed and i think he ultimately therefore sees no need for people and ultimately at the end well, I mean, there's a question mark all the way through as to whether he sees a need for family throughout the film. You know, he's cold, he's disconnected, he's isolated. Um, and I think that's, by the end of the film, you see that isolation and that disconnection from everyone else. And if you look through the film, his one constant thread is his son, H.W., who by the end of the film, he's he's kind of broken connection with him as well. And all that leaves is the one real connection he has with his nemesis, which is Eli. So the relationship between the two of them is kind of the foundation of the whole film. And it's the one sort of constant thread that goes all the way through. And again, I think there's this question mark over capitalism versus religion throughout the film. Obviously, Daniel being the capitalist, Eli being the kind of depiction of religion. But actually, they're both capitalists in a way. And I think Eli just does it under the guise of religion. And basically, Daniel is a capitalist who has sort of taken on the power of God and discarded with the kind of spectacle that comes religion because he doesn't need it because he he can kind of see that in the 20th century which is obviously we've moved we start at the late 1800s and we move into the early 1900s in the 20th century people will need oil more than they'll need religion so you know both of them almost represent capitalism and a god to a certain extent i think the conflict between the two of them because they're such different characters is what makes the whole thing sort of so interesting yeah definitely and um there's there's one thing that's um echoed throughout the film of um <clears throat> and, and i believe it's the name of eli's church um the church of the third Re- revelation do, do you understand the um significance of the third revelation i i, I probably won't be able to articulate it so you go you go ahead and, and, and explain so the first revelation was god's commandments handed down to moses the second revelation is jesus's teaching to man and the third revelation is any man filled with the holy spirit and says he is imbued with the powers and teachings of god this is this is something that a lot of preachers used around this time to basically take power and they could say hey i've got the the holy ghost in me 
and um, I'm going to um, cure you. I'm going to um, set you on the right path in life. And if you just listen to me and do what I say, life's going to be great. So this is where we, we see Eli using his um, healing powers to cure the old woman for arthritis, um, get out of here, wicked ghost and all that kind of stuff, which which is a great scene, incidentally. But I believe there's that, that scene um, in the church where Daniel is just looking on to um, to, to Eli with with uh, a sense of like disgust and like a little you can see a little bit of a smirk on his face as well which is interesting it's it's almost like a nod to i know what you're doing i know the the tricks that you are playing and in in that respect like daniel does see through the the hullabaloo of 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 the church but the only way he's able to do that is because he is himself a fraudster and um he he does um write sermons himself um you know we see that in one of the first um scenes where he goes to the um he has this congregation of people and he's he's trying to convince them to to let him drill for oil in in their town um if you, if you were to say i was an oil man that that famous scene there and yet he he knows the buttons to press and he he understands um how to to pull these these people into his world um but as you say that there is this um this this kind of struggle between the two of uh, religion versus capitalism and it's it's interesting um it kind of reminds me of um Friedrich Nietzsche and his views on Christianity and God so, so he believed that around the 1800s, he, he, he announced the, the death of God uh, and said, basically, with the death of God, people's foundational values would be pulled pulled away from them, like pulling a rug from underneath someone's feet. And they would then have to find their own values in something else. And just as he kind of prophesied, here comes capitalism which offers you so much. And um, he, he, he also said about Christianity, he, he says in, in Beyond Good and Evil that Christianity, Christianity encouraged and rewards the sickness and weakness that Nietzsche thinks that we should try to overcome. It persuades us to rest content in our weaknesses rather than to grow strong, which is it, it's kind of like a depiction of Eli's character, isn't it? It's like um, it, it, he he would love people to be coming to his church with with arthritis and um, problems, you know. He wants to be the um, the shepherd over the weak sheep, you know. His father is like a classic example of that. He's a man who had acres of land that he saw as um, goat tracks and uh, you know goat farm unable to bake bread because they, they they were unable to to farm to create agriculture and then you have someone come along like Daniel Plainview who offers so much more and and capitalism kind of sits on the same foundation of of faith of um, offering um people salvation it's it says that hey if you participate if you are part of um this project then the the wealth will flow down from the very top to to where you are at 
And if you work really hard, you can move up that system. It offers man a new value and a new hope. Yeah, I, th- I, I mean, I think it, it's uh, there is there is so much there is so much mirrored in in the, the the idea of like capitalism and religion through in in the depiction of it in this film and through therefore Daniel and, and Eli and like you said, Eli wants people to keep coming to his church and he wants to be able to represent himself as the you know the voice of God, um, but ultimately, as we find out, you know, towards the at the end of the film. He is a capitalist as well. And like I said, he just does it through the guise of religion. And what I, you know, Daniel is able to just see through that. And he just sees him as a fraud and it's nothing more than a performance. And uh, and I think it's there's an interesting thing about his name, Daniel Plainview, in the sense that on one hand, he is able to plainly see what other people are and represents himself as nothing more than what he says he is, despite the fact that everything he says is is a, well, a lot of what he says is a lie because it's 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 designed to to benefit him, and obviously there's a point in it as well. There's there's a there's a kind of um, almost a, a a switch or a, a change in the balance of power because obviously, you know, Eli's like you said, his church is the church of the third revelation. But at one point in the film, Daniel shout, Daniel is, uh, shouts, "I am the third revelation," and at that point, what he means is that God now speaks through him. And I think the film represents God as almost like a transactional exchange that's kind of on a par with capitalism. So Eli has the has his power or value through his perceived ability to speak to God or for God to speak through him. And Daniel has power through his wealth and what he can contribute to society. Like you said, you know, it, it, it can provide the agriculture that the place needs, the education he talks about for the children, provide bread, more bread than they'll ever need to eat. Um, so the capitalism that almost used to belong to religion that people would follow even though it doesn't always necessarily offer what it's selling, Daniel can offer what he's selling. All he's sa- all he's saying is, I can basically provide wealth to the people here, but just, he just does it through very, I suppose, selfish means. In the sense that ultimately he's doing he's, he he presents himself as doing it for the people, but really he's doing it because he, because he wants to com- because he wants to accumulate the wealth. And actually, by the you know by the end of the film, we see that Daniel has become the third revelation or the prophet. Because if you think about moving into the 20th century he knows that his oil is going to fuel modern life and he controls sort of like well as you know then we'll come on to it but he controls what oil which has been referred to as the blood of the land and now represents what americans will worship wealth and power not that religious healing and religious well yeah the religious healing that, that eli is offering so there, there's there's a real interesting dynamic between the two, and it, and it, I think it, it, it's presented in this really really intense conflict all the way through that goes you know the, between the two men, and there's it's almost there's this there's this really nice kind of idea of almost one-upmanship all the way through the film, which obviously culminates in in Daniel murdering Eli um, because of the rage that's built up for him through his life for so long for this for this uh, this character that he, that he sees as a fraud and a rival. Yeah, it's really interesting because. As I said previously, you'd expect Daniel to to kind of have the the upper hand um, throughout the film, almost to like um, discount Eli um, as a person because he knows he's a fraud and he's weak and he doesn't have any real power, and yet he's able to captivate and and, and pull kind of Daniel down into the um, the weeds, if you will. He could, in like it actually shows that like there's that scene where Eli goes and asks Daniel for money, 
and he he ends up beating Eli, but he himself gets down into the dirt and starts to fight like a, a madman. And yeah, so so it's like and on all the way, I mean, all the way even to the to the point of him killing Eli, like he's he's dragging him down to like um a position where he's already won. He's he's already won the battle. He he didn't have to kill Eli in the end. He he killed him just by um the fact that he took his milk. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um he he didn't didn't have to resort to the physical violence, but yeah, he hates him, doesn't he? <laughs> he hates him. Yeah, well, you're right. Like, because also ultimately, what what Daniel represents is what ultimately finished Eli. Because obviously, when he comes back to him at the end, you know, he well, all the way th- towards the start of him when we're first introduced to Eli, he's asking for money for his church, you know, so he can put money into the church and grow his following. But then. And this is where Daniel can see straight through him and, and the fact that he just, you know, he wants to build his own wealth. And when he comes back to him at the end of the film, he says he's been working in radio. He's wearing these nice clothes, nice shoes, a nice silver cross around his neck. So clearly he's benefited from the wealth that he's been searching for that, that, that under the guise of this religious um, religious figure as a, you know, as a televangelist. But actually the the thing that has finished Eli is, I think, you know, he's, you know, by this point of the film, we're, we're into the, the Great Depression era of America and the financial uh, state of the economy has been what's finished him. Whereas Daniel has just, you know, has, been, has has kind of benefited through that. Because again, all through this period, people still need oil. Daniel is Daniel's providing what the people need in order to, to have the, their life's function and the way that the society works at the time. And yeah, so almost what finishes Eli is what Daniel represents. And then Daniel actually finishes him himself by beating him to death. And like you said, he doesn't need to because he's already won. The fact that Eli comes to him asking for money, admitting that he has failed, admitting that he just you know, was after the after the money, you know, particularly by the fact that he claims he has oil to sell to Daniel, which Daniel knows is not true with that great scene. But yeah, and, and ultimately Daniel has won, but that's not enough for him. He has to, you know, he feels this need to beat him to death quite brutally in an incredibly violent, uncomfortable to watch scene. And uh, yeah, and then, and then obviously ends the line with, um, I'm finished. And you really do feel like he's finished. Well, he's he's finished. Um, he's finished this game that it's you know it's it's funny like everyone in life needs a purpose, right? And you know Nietzsche says this. He he talks about values and values lead to purpose. And without obviously at the end of that film, he has what he wants. And we, we can go into this. There's this great scene um, where we, we get a little bit more of a glimpse into Daniel Plainfield's character when he's speaking to his brother. And interestingly, his, his brother um, is, is a very important character because he seems to humanize um, Daniel the most. And we're able to, to get a little, bit of a little bit of a deeper look into like who, who the man is and, and what makes him tick. Are you an angry man, Henry? About what? Are you envious? Do you get envious? I don't think so, no. A 
have a competition in me. I want no one else to succeed. I hate most people. That part of me is gone. Working and not succeeding. All my uh, failures has left me. Uh, I just don't care. Well, if it's in me, it's in you. There are times when I... I look at people and I see nothing worth liking. I want to earn enough money I can get away from everyone. Yeah, so I, I think this um, central question of what is Daniel's motivation is, um, is, is so integral to, to the film and um, or, or lack of. So, so, you know, finding your why is central to any person on this earth. Nietzsche actually said, he who has a why can endure anyhow. Knowing your why is, imp- is an important first step in figuring out how to achieve the goals that excite you and create a life that you enjoy living. Which brings us to Daniel's motivation. Like, w- what is his rosebud? Like, he, he mentions in that s- scene there, he wanted to earn enough money that he can get away from it, everyone. So he, he wouldn't be able to see anyone anymore. And the, the the final act of the film, obviously we see him in this large mansion and he, he's not looking the best. Although the cardigan, shout out to the cardigan, looking fantastic in that. If, I don't know if you can buy that on um, on Amazon somewhere, but God, that that's a, a thick thread count. And yeah, so, so he's obviously away from the people that he hates. Is he happy? Does he have what he wanted? Well, see, this is the thing, right? Because I that line that you just mentioned, I want to earn enough money to get away from everyone. That's the line that was in my head when I first when we first talk, talked about this film and the fact that you know the whole idea of the consequences of building walls. And I think if we if we look at that, you're right. At the end, he has built walls. He has isolated himself. But you could sort of argue, or you could question, is that the thing that's kind of driven him mad by the end of the film? So again, there's some of the consequences of putting up walls because all the way through the film, he's kind of distancing himself from people apart from HW. And by this point in the film, right at the end, he has now cut the ties with HW because he says he wants to kind of break out on his own, do his own thing. So, and you know, clearly Daniel is is not happy, but I, I, have, I, I think there's a bigger question than that is, is could he ever be happy? Because yeah, his motivation might be to get away from everyone else. But there's one thing, again, in that same scene that really stood out to me on the most recent viewings I've had that I'd kind of not forgotten about, but I hadn't appreciated the first time around. So I think it goes one step further than that because he says, I want to earn enough money to get away from everyone. But then he also says, I hate most people. I have a competition in me, Henry. I want no one else to succeed. And I think that's also a big part of his motivation. It's not just he wants to be wealthy and he wants to get away from everyone, but he always wants everyone else to perish at the same time. And I think that's what ultimately drives him. I think it's more complex than that. I I think, um, well, I agree with you, but back to that quote, he who has a why can endure anyhow, right? So... It's suggesting that you have your why, your why is your kind of North Star, and then um, your how is your kind of like ship to get there. 
I, I feel like with him, it's his why was like, oh, I want to earn enough money to, to get away from everyone. Like, that's what I want. How am I going to do it? I believe, actually, it's his how that kind of gave him purpose. It's the competition. It is the um, the, the meetings with people. Um, it is the, the stamping on um, people. It is, is the paying quail prices for, um, for oil, oil fields. It, it is the, the, the challenge, the, 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 you know, that the first scene you see a man who's, who falls down a mine shaft, finds that he has silver and somehow makes it from middle of nowhere to the next town. That is the man. That is the, 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 the drive, the competition, the, um, the game. I think that that's what gives him life. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. And I think I think that first scene when he drags himself with a broken leg to the nearest town, and like we said when we talked about this yesterday, all the while making sure the silver is being counted and weighed properly so that he gets the value that he deserves from it. I mean, he is ultimately so driven. And I think as, as the film progresses, he goes from that position of, wanting to build his wealth to actually wanting like you said to stamp down everyone else and make sure he is the last man standing oh, it, it gives him strength <laughs> you know i say well i think that's that that feeds very much into that very last scene of the film as well and i i think it if you think back across coming back to this idea that he wants no one else to succeed and he kind of develops that through the film at the end when he he brutally murders eli if you think about all the way through the film, a lot of the major important actions that he takes have they seem to be motivated by the desire to kind of avenge or act revenge for himself against people who he's perceived have wronged him in certain ways, and that that could be some something as simple as someone he feels as someone has disrespected him, and it can just be something as small as that for him to to spark into this rage and this need to then to then kind of to destroy that person, and I think when we get to the end of the film. He has, he has revenged everyone who is who he's perceived to have wronged him. And Eli is the last one left. Eli is the last one he hasn't got one over. And then all of a sudden, Eli walks back into his life and asks for money. And he knows he's won. And then he has this huge confrontation. And I think that's where he ends the film with the most appropriate words. And he just says, I'm finished. And I think it's because he has he has destroyed everyone he perceived to be in competition with. And he has got to the point where he has... He's beaten everyone else. No one else has succeeded but him. But to come back to the question you asked before, is he happy? Well, he's certainly not happy. It's when I, when I think about the film. Actually, there's there's one moment that you could potentially say he was happy, and that was finding the oil on the Sunday ranch. You know, um, the the seepage. I think H.W. finds the oil, and he's so related and he's like having that really kind of like special moment with his um son um hw and you mentioned about slights and you know people saying things out of hand and he kind of goes off the rails there's i I love this there's this one scene where he has a meeting with standard oil and i think it'd be nice to play that and i think that that for me hides a secret to this film and why he is finished We'll make you a millionaire while you're sitting here from one minute to the next. What else would I do with myself? 
Are you asking me? What else would I do with myself? Take care of your son. I don't know what you would do. If you were me and Standard offered to buy what you had for a million dollars, why? So why? You know why. Yeah, you fellas should just scratch around in the dirt and find it like the rest of us instead of buying up someone else's hard work. I've scratched around the dirt, son. You're gonna change your shipping costs? <laughs> we don't dictate shipping costs, that's railroad business. Oh, you don't own the railroads? Of course you do. Of course you do. Where are you gonna put it all? Where? Build a pipeline, make a deal with Union Oil, be my guest. But if you can't pull it off, you've got an ocean of oil under your feet with nowhere to go. Why not turn it over to us? We'll make you rich. You spend time with your boy. It's a great discovery. Now, let us help you. You just tell me how to run my family. It might be more important now that you've proven the field we're offering to buy you out. One night, I'm gonna come to you inside of your house, wherever you're sleeping, and I'm gonna cut your throat. What? What are you talking about? Have you gone crazy, you know Daniel? I, I heard what you said. Why did you, you say don't tell me about my son. Why are you acting insane and threatening to cut my throat? You don't tell me about my son. I'm not telling you anything. I'm asking you to be reasonable. If I've offended you, I apologize. We'll see what I can do. Yeah, so um, that's one of my favourite f- um, scenes of the film. You, you get to see a full range of um, Daniel Plainview as a character and obviously the the great act- acting work of Daniel Day-Lewis. Now, when, when I first watched this scene, I, I took it as, as um, at the surface, you know, he obviously doesn't like it when you try to um, suggest anything to him. He's not a man that that takes advice from others. On on further watchings of it and f- further viewings of it, I thought there's a real change in him when he he says, "What would what would I do with all that money?" And and this brings us to the end of the film, where he has all the money. If he'd been given millions and millions of dollars, you know, um, back when H.W. was a, a child, what would he do with that? Would would he go off and um, spend time with his boy, as as um, the guy from Standard Oil suggested? Would H.W. have had a, a better education? Would, would H.W. have had a, a father that was there and present? Would he have, have gone and, you know, plays baseball in the back garden? I think not. He had an opportunity to get away from all those people right then and there. I believe that the crux of it was he knew in that moment that without the competition, without the um, the fight, what would be the point in his life? And then we come to the end, end scene where he defeats uh, Eli. There's no more competition. Exactly. So he's finished. Yeah. Um, and I think I think actually at this point we should, because it is such an incredible scene, we should just play a little clip of that interaction with Eli at the end. 
um, just to, to kind of see that the point that Daniel has got to and the, can, the sort of the state that he's in um, kind of rattling around this big mansion on his own. So I think we'll just play a little clip of that here as, as well, just because I think it's, it's such a great interaction. Who was nursing you, poor Eli? One of Bandy's sows? That land has been had. Nothing you can do about it. It's gone. It's had. If you would just you take this lease, Daniel. Drain it. Drain it, Eli, you boy. Drain dry. I'm so sorry. If, if you have a milkshake, and I have a milkshake, and I have a straw. There it is. That's a straw. You see? Watch it. My straw reaches across the room and starts to drink your milkshake. I drink your milkshake. I drink it up. Don't bully me, Daniel. Did you think your song and dance and your superstition would help you, Eli? I am the third revelation. I am who the Lord has chosen. Mr. Daniel? I'm finished. Okay, so obviously, yeah, we've just heard the um, the point that, that Daniel gets to with Eli. And I think we've you mentioned the scene with Standard Oil, which is a, a brilliant scene. And and I think that really nicely represents this idea of comp- almost competition in industry, because like you said, he could have taken the money, walked away with his millions and got away from all the people that he wants to get away from. Um, but like you said, it's the competition that drives him to continue. And I also think, a scene that I particularly like, probably my favourite scene in the film, is the scene between Eli and Daniel, where Daniel is uh, confessing his sins and being baptised, if you like. And I think that represents a personal competition that he has in him. Because all the way through, we have this kind of uncomfortable, tense back and forth between Daniel and Eli. For example, there's the scene where Eli comes and asks if he can bless the well before it opens or bless bless the, uh, you know, before they start drilling for oil which Daniel agrees to, and then on the day, just doesn't let him. You can see that 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 upsets Eli greatly. Um, then you have the scene later on where Eli comes and asks for money and Daniel kind of slaps him around and pushes him in the mud. And then we get to this point in the film, and this is where Eli gets a chance to win. And I think it's, again, a bit like in that standard oil scene. You can see the rage inside Daniel in the moment. And we'll just, I think, again, we'll play a clip of that scene here because it's it's really good and I think it and it leads on to again the end point that we get to. Say it, say it. Abandon my child. Say it louder. Say it louder. I've abandoned my child. I've abandoned my child. I've abandoned my boy. You beg for the blood. Just give me the blood, Eli. Let me get out of here. Give me the blood, Lord, and let me get away. 
Do you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Yes, I do. Get out of here, devil! Out, devil! Out, sin! Do you, do you accept the church of the third revelation as your spiritual guide? Get out of here! Christ as your Savior. Yes, I do. Would you be free from the burden of sin? There's power in the power in the blood. Would you be there a victory win? There's wonderful power in the blood. So we've just obviously heard um, what is my favorite scene in the film. Um, with uh, with Daniel's Daniel's baptism, if you like, his confession. You love a baptism, though, don't you? Who you love, love a baptism? baptism? <laughs> <laughs> don't know. Maybe I do. Maybe I don't. Um, apparently, I do in this though. So yeah. So this, like I said, you know, the, the scene with Standard Oil, I think, represents almost industrial competition for him, and I think this is this represents personal competition with Eli. Obviously, it, it it leads. We get led to this point because of the because of his industrial competition. Because essentially, the reason he agrees to have this confession is because he needs Mister Bandy's tract for his pipeline, and Mister Bandy only agrees to allow him to lay his pipeline through his land if he goes to the church and becomes one of the the third revolution the third revolu- revelation and. Uh, and, and, and agrees to, to have his baptism. So he's doing it for sort of professional reasons. But I think this is a chance that this is a chance that Eli sees to get one up on Daniel. And again, a bit like that standard oil scene, you can see that he is the rage is building up inside him. And I think by the end of this moment where he is basically being humiliated in front of in front of the town by Eli. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? You know, one of the rumours were uh, about the actor who is originally going to play Eli, um, Keller O'Neill, one of the reasons they, they suggested that it didn't work was because he was intimidated by um, Daniel Day-Lewis. Can you imagine with um, four days notice and, you, and you're saying to um, Paul Dano, hey, you're in, and you, that's one of the scenes that you're going to have to film <laughs> where you're slapping, <laughs> you're slapping Daniel Day-Lewis around the face but also not only that but obviously because daniel day lewis is obviously well known for truly becoming his characters i'd be thinking he might just get up and knock me out (laughs) (laughs) he could do (laughs) just he definitely backhand you he definitely backhand you he he, it's it's not a clenched fist it's more of a backhand in in um from daniel playing for sure yeah definitely definitely a scary scene a scary prospect for to any for any actor to film this scene with uh with daniel day lewis but yeah i think this is this is a you know he's he's been humiliated in front of everyone by eli eli is as kind of at the at this point eli is winning the battle for for you know this personal triumph over each other and i think this is the point where i think for me it feels as though daniel decides he is going to murder eli because there's um obviously it won't pick anything up because you don't hear anything but at the end of the baptism when he's where he stands up and he walks back and he shakes Eli's hand and he says something to him but you don't hear what he says I think this is where the title of the film comes from in part I think he says to him essentially there will be blood 
because he i don't you know what i think what do you think i think you know at the end he says i told you i would eat you well i i think it's the same thing i think you know i don't think it's it doesn't matter what the words are but i think basically he's because he, he's sort of smiling to eli and as he shakes his hand eli looks really scared and i think essentially he's saying to him this is going to come back to you you know i i i am going to get revenge on you for this and i think that's where he looks scared he does look scared he still doubles down though, doesn't <laughs> yeah. he? he still doubles down and gives him a good old slap around the face no no this is obviously after this is after he slapped him around the face and he gets up at the end and he shakes his hand and he says something to him and eli just looks terrified and then daniel walks away and kind of thanks everyone and everything but i think he literally get after after he's been humiliated he gets up to him shakes his hand while the music's playing and the song starts says something to eli Eli's eyes go wide and I think it's basically he that's him saying there will be blood this is going to come back to you in some way and I'm gonna I'm gonna win and I think that's one of the reasons where this um the title comes from is that this this drive and this rage to win this personal battle which we know by this point is going to end is going to end in blood um and I think it's a really great scene and I think so therefore you've got this like professional or industrial competition and a personal competition that he is absolutely driven to his last breath to become the victor and to just destroy his his opposition and it's yeah it's a it's a really it's a really tense incredible scene that i think again is a is a real um sort of foreboding shadow to what's to come at, at the end when he uh when we have the final competition so yeah and uh and i think also the other thing as well about that scene is at this point obviously early in the film uh, Daniel adopts HW um, because his 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 real father dies in uh, one of his earlier his earlier uh, wells, and obviously he's he prides himself on on his son. He you know he presents him very well. I mean, ultimately we know his son is a prop to him because he says he's able to use the cute little face to help him help him buy land. But I think at this point as well, the fact that Eli has made him admit he abandoned his son when his son is really kind of like you said there's that one happy moment is when he he discovers the oil with hw and i think there is a there is a question mark of actually what that relationship between the two of them is and i think again eli has humiliated him by making him admit that the person he supposedly presents himself to care about more than anyone else in the world he makes him admit he's abandoned him and that is one of the things that drives him to this rage so i think it poses an interesting question and i'm going to ask it to you ask you now do you think Daniel loves HW? Yes. Podcast over. <laughs> <laughs> no, go on. Expand. Daniel, Daniel Plainview is n- not all of one thing and none of the other, <laughs> if you get my meaning. he It's possible that he's one thing and the other thing. So it's kind of like, when I think about the, some of the key see- scenes with HW... I think what what he does, he's got eyes on two things. He's got his eyes on HW, but he's also got his eye on the main prize, which is obviously the competition and the drive to um, pump oil. But there are key scenes like throughout the film, which make me believe that there is a love there. And it goes all the way through the film as well. So the first se- um, sequence with them, them two together is arguably the end of that 20 minute sequence at the start where there's um there's no dialogue and it ends with daniel plainview on the train looking down to baby hw and they're both looking at each other i think hw is playing with daniel's um mustache and 
it just the, the it's a still shot on the both of them looking at each other this is significant otherwise why would paul thomas anderson show us this he doesn't need to use you know 30 seconds to um sh- show that if it was like a three second shot that obviously shows that it's a transition in time or like um or location they're moving from one location to the other but the fact that it's so long and prolonged i, I believe that paul thomas anderson is telling us that there is a love there you you could counter that and say well how about that sequence where um hw's eardrums are, are burst when, when the oil um, comes to the surface and um f- the first thing that daniel does he races to hw collects him from um the 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 top of the the rig and transports him to to the uh, i guess mess hall and then goes to see to the oil and, and i guess you could say that he's he's looking after his um prospect there he's he's um trying to protect what he's been working so hard for, but he has been working so hard for it. And arguably, you know, this is a different time. This is not a time of, you know, come by R. This is a time of he's sunk all of his money in into this prospect and he can't do anything for um for HW right there and then. But he can make sure that this prospect is is going to do what it needs to do. And he's trying for it not to set on fire. Added to that, the next scene is him in the fetal position holding HW whilst um, HW is, is crying. There's there's a scene when he sends HW off to boarding school and arguably that's um, to take him out of the situation with him and his brother. And there's a scene where he's on the, the train again with HW and if you really look, if you actually um, play it in slow motion, you can see a single tear dropping from Daniel's eyes. You can't see it if it's in normal normal speed. Fast forward all the way towards the end. Obviously, there's the showdown between him and his son. And he 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 says, bastard from a basket. He tries to hurt his son, you think. I don't I don't necessarily think it's that. I, I think it, it is that, but I don't think it's all that. And it's something that Daniel Day Lewis said in an interview. He was being asked about how he believes um HW will be without his father. And he says that he believes that Daniel in the end releases him. He'll be fine. He'll be fine. He'll be fine. Um, he said that HW can go on his way knowing that he is his own man. And the fact that Daniel Day-Lewis gets so close to his characters, and I, I was watching him throughout this interview, and it was, it's fascinating because he does have a real connection to Daniel Plainview. And so when, when he a- answers that, it felt like Daniel Plainview was actually answering the question. So do I believe that he loves um hw yes but it's complicated because he's daniel plainview (laughs) yeah i i think you're absolutely right and i think um like you said the final sort of like confrontation between the two of them is um you might you might think that the the end point there is that 
they have just the the bond has been broken and and you know for his point of view like you said daniel plainview by this point in the film it seems like he's got what he wanted he's got more money than he can ever spend he's away from people in his mansion but i and i think you're right i think there is a complicated relationship there because the scene as you've mentioned when they have the confrontation and he tells him you know you're not my son i used you as a prop and you know you're a bastard from a basket i think that is his raw gut reaction to the fact that he's hypersensitive about the disrespect you know obviously he's he's built this business up over his life and i i guess his his goal was to to continue to be business partners and for hw to continue that plain view legacy with what he's built but what hw is saying is as you know i want to be my own man i want to have my own business daniel plainview sees that as some sort of disrespect and obviously as we know through his his behavior throughout the film that is one of the things that is sort of like the red mist descends and i think it's that that the way he responds is just a gut raw emotional reaction to his perception that hw has shown him some kind of disrespect so he has this you know so he pushes him away but again i i think it's just after that scene one of the you know we see a flashback to him sitting with hw in the basket when he first when he first kind of basically picks him up after his real father has died and i don't think you'd get that flashback if it didn't if that if if the whole thing didn't mean something so i think you're right i think there is there's definitely a love there but he it's he, he struggles to uh, to balance that with this competition and this anger that's within him and i think it's just uh, he just gets triggered to into an emotional reaction which might make it seem that he is he doesn't love H.W. Oh, yeah, I think you're right. I think he does. It's just he struggles to 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 balance that with with the other parts of his personality. Yeah, no, I, I do. I agree with that. Like Paul Paul Thomas Anderson, he's such an incredible director. He's not putting things in there by by chance. Everything means something. So he def he's definitely s- suggesting that that's what um, Daniel's kind of thinking about. There's there's actually something that. Paul Thomas Anderson um, said, which I think is um, quite interesting, and it's tied into something that you just said about legacy. And um, he said, "Tell a lie." It's, it, it wasn't Paul Thomas Anderson, actually Daniel Day Lewis. He said he compared Plainview to pharaohs of Egypt who spent their lives building magnif- magnificent, magnificent pyramids, which only ended up acting as their tombs. So that's quite a good analogy for what Daniel Plainview has done, right? He spent all of his life trying to build this um, tomb, this um, trying to buy this house to keep him all, everyone away from him. And I, I think something that you said about like legacy there, the thing with the pharaohs is like, if you're the son of a pharaoh, you're doomed to following the footsteps of um, your father you're, you're doomed to do exactly the same as as your as your father would do i think in some ways um the fact that he disowns him at the end he says you're you're not my son in some way gives him a freedom to live his life independently to seek meaning and value that's um outside of the capitalist values um of competition that that he could have ruined his son with 
like the, the trauma of, of his son. He, he could have ruined his life, but in the end, the, the man that H.W. turns into, I think we're all proud of. And, you know, he ends up marrying um, the Sunday girl. And the hope is that he's he's not going to follow in the footsteps of his father and he's going to be a better man and hopefully have a, a better life. Well, yeah, I, and I think there's a there's a really nice line actually that that you could take that you could take in a couple of different ways when they're having that conversation and he says to him you're not my son he also says there's none of me in you and I think the, on the face of it that might be him saying you're not my son you know you're not the same as me uh, and he sees that as a as a bad thing but I think it's actually you're right he's setting him free he's saying there is none of me in you therefore you're not going to end up like me which is actually what he probably wants for HW because I think he's smart enough that he probably knows the place he's ended up. He's not happy, but I think he probably knows he never would. He was never going to be happy because he has this competition in him, this drive where all he wants is is no is he wants everyone else to fail, and he's just angry all the time. And maybe that's him saying there is none of me in you, and actually that's a good thing because you can walk away from this this misery, this anger that I'm surrounded by and become, like you said, become your own man. Enjoy, you know, the fact that you have your whole life in front of you. You're married. You have enough wealth to set up your own business and be your own man. So it's a really, it's a, yeah, it's a really complicated relationship. And it's obviously the one that you kind of root for through the film. Um, And I think they end up in a, probably in a place where, you know, HW doesn't enter into an argument with Daniel. Because I think he knows it's best to just walk away and leave things as they are and kind of move on with his life in the knowledge that his father has put him in a good footing to go. Well, you know, it's his father, his 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 adopted father has, has given him everything he needs to go and have a good life that he wants. Yeah. And, and again, you know, would you rather be right? Would you rather be happy? And I think um, HW knows the answer to that question. So in in a sense, like um, we we've kind of we probably started with a lesson um, that was about um, building up walls and sure walls are important in in the lesson, but I think like that is the lesson, isn't it? It's like you know don't don't let competition and um, rivalry and being right kill all the potential for being content and happy and, and at peace. Kind of an obvious one. um kind of an obvious one but i think we all do that to a certain extent um in in minor things in life like whether it's like an argument with your spouse or um or um, maybe it's a football game you know we all have that competition in us sometimes it's it's better to enjoy the game versus winning the game yeah and you know know, and know when to walk away yeah know when to walk away from things and and when to let things lie um, because like you said, it, you know, potentially always trying, always having to have the last word or the last action, you're never going to be finished. You know, ne- it's, it's, it's a never ending pursuit, isn't it? <laughs> it is. And talk about having the last um, word. I, uh, I think um, that's it. That's about us for today. I think we got to a really good point with this film. I'm really happy with w- how we actually <laughs> almost talked it out and got to a, a good, good point of understanding with it. Um, because through talking about the film with you, I think I understand it a little bit more, particularly that the the ending sequence, and um, 
and yeah, maybe we could um, um, tee up the next film that's going to be on the podcast. Yeah, so the next film is going to be a bit more lighthearted and we'll get onto that in a second. But I think I just want to sort of agree with what you said. This has been a really interesting conversation. I have to say, I think it's definitely helped me get uh, a deeper understanding of the film having uh, talking to you about it but i will say there is probably still so we probably could talk for another two or three hours about this film there's so much in there to get into and i think there is so much more that i personally could understand about it and, and really kind of learn about about the film what it's saying but i think we've kind of covered the main things that that come to mind or that have been, that, that came to mind when i've watched it recently um so it's been it's been really good but i'm sure we'll both go back and watch it again and take more stuff out of it because it's it's awesome um so yeah so this the next one as i said is a bit more lighthearted, and this is more of a personal one to me so the next one we're going to discuss is terminator 2 judgment day and we're going to talk about it in the context of that is the film that really made me fall in love with movies when I was a kid. Uh, and I just want to talk about how my relationship with film and movies started. And it kind of all started with that with that film. So that's how I want to talk about that. Does that sound all right to you? It does sound okay. It's a little bit ego. Um, but, you know, I'll, I'll play <laughs> along. Um, <laughs> it's going to be great. I'll ask you some really difficult questions. And um, you'll never want to do that ever again. So... <laughs> um look forward i'll look forward to that episode and um yeah i guess um the only thing for us left to do is just uh, um thank everyone for watching the podcast to you know if you could if you could follow us like subscribe um like things um follow our instagram all that kind of jazz it just just helps the, the whole the whole process isn't it nick it does and if you could uh, if you do um, follow us on any or subscribe on any of the, the podcast apps if you can like review and rate that always helps it, I think it's something to do with the algorithms that gets that gets more it gets us seen a bit more which is great it's science Nick. it is science science, science and technology um, so yeah and uh, if you do that we'd very much appreciate it but again thank you to everyone that's listened to this point we hope you'll join us on future episodes uh, thank you very much for listening and we will catch you on the next one goodbye bye bye